The From Day One podcast is brought to you by The Bridge. Visit us at thebridgebk.com. Hi, I'm Nick Bailey, and this is the From Day One podcast. Today's guest is Boaz Galad, founder and CEO of Brooklyn Capital. That's Brooklyn, not Brooklyn, a real estate investment and development company that's becoming a major player here in Brooklyn. Galad has been developing this borough for over 15 years and is known as one of the pioneers that's contributed to the major changes here. Brooklyn targets land and neglected buildings and undervalued areas, turns them into modern living spaces. They've acquired about 100 properties and over 2,000 units have been brought to the market. Their Bed-Stuy headquarters stand out among real estate offices. You'll find vintage Miss Pac-Man arcade machine, pizza grill, wine fridge, parrots, an outdoor stone patio. Galad's also the author of The Real Estate Millionaire, and he's an adjunct professor in the MBA program at New York uh, University, NYU. Baz, it's a pleasure. Likewise, thank you. Brooklyn has changed a lot in, in recent years, certainly. Um, for those of us that's lived here, it's, it seemed like the change has been overwhelming in some ways. You know, you've actually been a part of that change. And talk, tell, me a, tell me a little bit about your relationship to Brooklyn. Like, are you from here, for example? I grew up in Israel, but I've been living in uh, Brooklyn for 22 years. And what caused you to move here? Oh, uh, I didn't have the money to pay rent in Manhattan. <laughs> so when my uh, girlfriend and I, now my wife, uh, moved to Brooklyn, was the, the only reason was uh, we couldn't afford the rent. And we just had to move in together. And we said, let's just live just across the river, live our lives in Manhattan, and then come sleep in Brooklyn. But that was 22 years ago. And now, uh, raising three kids, living in Brooklyn, I don't see myself living uh, in Manhattan no matter what. Where was that first neighborhood that you started out in? Right on the border of Brooklyn Heights. So as close to Manhattan as possible. I really didn't know Brooklyn. I didn't know the So downtown, downtown Brooklyn. Exactly, huh? yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what, were, you, were you involved in real estate at that time? Or Oh, no. What, what kind of work were you doing? So actually, I uh, came to New York to study acting. I was an actor for a while. And uh, like any successful actor, I was waiting tables. Um, <laughs> and uh, working any job, taught on the side uh, and in a school and whatever I could. And you know, one thing led to the other. I thought of myself. Uh, while um, I'm pursuing my passion, which was acting, I want to make a little bit of money and not wait tables between shows. So we thought we're going to buy maybe a two-family uh, uh, every three, four years, buy another one and slowly build something. But I bought probably 18 in the first two years, and I found a new passion. Well, now, if you couldn't afford the rent in Brooklyn, how could you afford to buy 18 buildings? That's yeah, how, there's, there's, a, there's a missing step there somewhere, right? Exactly. So uh, first of all, a, f- a few things. Uh, first of all, I, um, um, I raised money. So I nothing came from my family. I'm not coming from a wealthy background at all. I spent a lot of time learning the market. I know nothing about it, absolutely nothing about real estate, about business, about marketing. Um, and one of the benefits was that we could get very uh, high leverage mortgages then. That was the good time uh, and the bad time at the same time. What year was it? Just, I guess, presumably pre-2008, but like post-2000 No, way, Yeah, 99, like actually, 99. Okay. So my first uh, property was bought in 99, um, and then we got another one. But still, you could get 90, 95% financing, uh, and I just spoke with, I was, uh, you know, just out there meeting people as many as possible, raised $20,000 from this person and $50,000 from that person and slowly, and one thing led to the other. So as value went up, you refine, refinance and you take the money and you buy another property. So you don't have to uh, keep on raising as much money as possible as, as needed. Now, it seems like, you know, convincing people to, to give you money to invest in New York real estate, like, seems pretty understandable. You know, you got to be a hustler. You got to talk to people. But 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 what about the other side of that equation? Like, how do you know what a good deal is? Like, how do you how do you get involved in that? How do you how do you outmaneuver 
like the million other people that are already doing it. I mean, New York real estate is a very mature market and like a, a very cutthroat and intense market as we know. Um, yes. How do you how do you handle that part of the business when you're just well, starting out? I think uh, first of all, it's not as a, as attractive in '99. So when you talk to someone about Brooklyn deals, they're like, "Why Brooklyn? My parents have done everything to get out of it, and now you want to pull me back into Brooklyn." So I think they always. Also, it was the dot com craziness. So people were used to making a fortune on buying some stock and you know, pet dot com or any right, of those. Sure. Exactly. And then so it, it's always challenging. So when the market is mature and it's easy to raise money, it's difficult to find the deals. And when the market is uh, new and frontier, uh, then it's hard to raise the capital. So there's always a challenge there. Um, so you were competing against like you know, Amazon stock or pets.com, like you mentioned. Exactly. In, in 99 and, and up until, I guess, probably about the middle of 2001, you know, those first couple of years that you're doing it, like the stock market was going insane. People were day trading. It was like a big thing. Um, so that was really a harder problem for you to solve than actually, there was plenty of property available, is what you're saying? There was property available. I I literally made 3% on the first property I bought and the other one, the second one. I literally knew nothing about it. I, um, you know, my favorite place to go to was Barnes & Noble. So I used to go, I went to the business section and again, I studied philosophy in college. So it's not like I have a back, business background and I read every book I can. I used to get a big coffee and sit there in Barnes and Noble and read. And every time I met a broker, if I met a broker and he said, well, it depends on the LTV, I said, absolutely. I had no idea what LTV is. And then I, I went to Barnes and Noble and read Loan to Value. Okay, so I understood that. that. And then I went back to another broker and met with him and um, they said, well, what's your LTC? And I was like, well, let me figure this one out. So as I progressed, I learned those things and you're learning a new vocabulary of, of words and you meet with people and you're basically willing to work for free uh, to start. And I did everything myself. Um, I went to Home Depot and picked up the stuff and I uh, picked up uh, potential tenants from the um, from the subway and, and took them to the apartments. And, and as you progress, you... You grow. You're you're doing it. You know. You're getting employees, and and you go from there. Yeah. What are some of like the core sort of first lessons you learned from that initial research, or maybe the first couple properties? Like, what are the what are the basic principles that you started to to use as rules of thumb when you were getting started like that? Yeah. So so I always say um, real estate is not about location; it's about people. So you have to be very clear about who you're serving. Um, uh, so when I started, I was probably 28, 29, and I served the clients that I was involved in. So I was an actor, I was young, I was 20s. So it made na- it's a natural progression to serve that clientele. So as tenants, I put ads in, uh, used to be backsta- uh, backstage, which was uh, a newspaper uh, for actors. I mm-hmm. put ads in the equity building for actors, trying to find people who could communicate with me. So you're trying to make millions off the, uh, the backs of underemployed actors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a, and, and I was then, neat, that's a neat trick, right? Yeah, well, when, and I was also a, uh, you know, a broke, um, you know, financially broke um, actors then too. So I think if you know your market, so I used to stand by the entrance of the subway and look at what kind of people walk into the subway. Is it uh, blue collar? Is it, you know, young people? Is it, you know, people in suits? So you're learning that market on- ongoingly. And if you understand the market you're serving, then it's easier for you to tailor it to their needs, whether it's the way you write the lease all the way to the design. And that didn't change. I mean, I've changed. I think I have a bigger challenge now serving the clientele I'm, I'm building for because I'm older, uh, I'm 46, so, but 
But again, if you specialize in a particular market, and that's what I think the key from the beginning, to really understand the market I'm serving and get to know it from the ins and outs. So talk a little bit about some of the neighborhoods that you identified back then. I actually saw, um, I saw an article about you guys and they had a map of a lot of your properties and it seemed like there was like this, it was the red dots on the map and there was a band sort of across the middle of Brooklyn. Like there wasn't a whole lot of Dumbo or Williamsburg and nor was there a lot of Canarsie or Sheepshead Bay. There was kind of this, like this middle section of Brooklyn where you guys owned tons and tons of properties. You know, how did that happen? Like how did you identify those neighborhoods? Uh, again, if you follow the clientels uh, and you serve it, you know what, what they're looking for, that's the neighborhood that pushed us. So in the beginning, I've done projects in Williamsburg and I've done projects in uh, Park Slope. And But as the market changed and matured, uh, I moved with those people. So uh, we have some rules of thumbs. And again, that might change according to our, to our uh, clients. Um, we buy by subways. We don't like to be more than 10, maybe 15 stops away from Manhattan, not more than that. Um, and I'll follow any... Uh, trend that I'm a kind of millennial uh, developer. So if you're a hipster, I'm going to follow you. So every place <laughs> I can see uh, a, a cool coffee shop or I can see the potential of uh, a great coffee shop and a bunch of people on bicycles, that's where I'm interested in looking at the property. So right now we're in uh, Bushwick and in uh, Bed-Stuy and in Crown Heights and Lefferts Gardens and any place that is not prime expensive. I, I do have two projects in Park Slope, but some of it I bought a long time ago or uh, when opportunity comes our way, we're going to buy it. We're not against it, but it doesn't mm-hmm. fit into our core business. Now, some a lot of the work you've done has has been like converting sort of, I guess you'd call them marginal spaces or unexpected spaces. I know there was like a there's a milk factory. There's been some industrial type properties that have turned residential. Um, how did you get into that specific niche? I think that uh, I I want to be creative in the process. I want to enjoy what I'm doing. Uh, we don't buy building with tenants. Uh, I have a hard time with um, what's called the repositioning or there's other words for it, not as nice. Uh, so I look always for empty spaces. I don't want to deal with um, with um, eviction and it's not it's not, a, it's not enjoyable for anyone. And um, so you're limited by the amount of space and opportunities you have. So naturally you're looking for something interesting. And I think one of the benefits is that the kind of people who either rent or buy from us appreciate history, appreciate uh, creativity, appreciate design. So the condensed milk factory in uh, East Williamsburg we bought, or um, we we own uh, six, seven churches mm-hmm. um, that came to us and they've been standing empty for a long time and the organization wants to sell them. So I think there's also a financial benefit for something interesting, creative. I think the kind of people going to buy the condos are looking and saying, I don't want a cookie cutter, I don't want just a uh, a fast build, but I want to do something very creative. And and as you said in the beginning of the podcast, uh, I think our office is a reflection of that. So we try to use as much uh, recycled material from buildings we demolished. To a, we create a when we started with the interior designer, I said I want to have a Google experience, not a real estate office experience. Interesting. So you you've contrasted yourself a little bit with like what I guess you would call like the, like the hobbyist real estate investor, right? Who typically would buy a multifamily that, that is residential, that does have tenants, often would be excited if there's tenants there, they can keep them there, maybe renovate the units when they come open. That's kind of like what you think of as like the weekenders, you know, the weekend real estate empire that people start to build slowly. Um, you see stuff like that, like the Millionaire Next Door book, or, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of self-help sort of people that do that. So that's one side of it. You guys are, you guys are clearly operating on a different level entirely from that. Um, when you started out, and of course now you've grown into be you know a large hundred million dollar company, which is a whole different thing. 
Um, but it seems like you guys still do have like a personal touch to the projects you do. How would you contrast yourselves with like, you know, say the Toll Brothers or other people that have come into Brooklyn that do these these huge developments uh, is that something that you aspire to do or is there is there something do you have do you feel like you have a different take on things than they do well i think the entrepreneur spirit is in me and i would love to go and grow as much as possible uh again it dictates what if we're going to build so so if someone asks me what do we do we say we're an urban dense developers so if there's an opportunity somewhere else i'll go somewhere else but i love brooklyn i live here i'm you know i've been here for 20 something years in brooklyn um so, and I think the zoning dictates it. So unless you have s- substantial political power or very deep pockets and combination of both, um, in Brooklyn especially, you're limited, but how big of a scale can you do of a project? So if you're doing Dumbo, uh, you're limited to one usage. If you're using downtown Brooklyn, you can do a high rise like Midtown, Manhattan. Manhattan. Uh, the neighborhoods we're building are limited by the size of it. So I always say, I'm too big for the small guys and too small for the big guys. Um, uh, I don't compete with what you call the weekend investor. I, mm-hmm. I started there, but uh, but we're trying to be a little different. And we do have tenant. Uh, I mean, we do have rental buildings, and we have con- main, our core mm-hmm. business is condos. Um, but I'll I'll do anything as long as it communicates with the community, with the neighborhood, with the design of the neighborhood. So. Um, did we fail in the past in design? Absolutely we did. When you do hundreds of buildings, you some of them I'm not very proud of, uh, whether it's on the quality level or the design level. But there's always a substantial amount of uh, thinking, uh, um, creativity, uh, teamwork to bring something that is communicative to the community, to its needs, to the architectural needs of the neighborhood, et cetera. So you, you mentioned community in, in a lot of these Brooklyn neighborhoods. Certainly these neighborhoods have changed dramatically in, in many ways. Some of those changes are visible. Um, some of them are less visible. Some of them have to do with the culture and the people that are there. What, you know, wh- how would you describe the changes that you've seen in these neighborhoods in Brooklyn since you started working there? I, I think that it's a, it's a tricky uh, subject, which I'm delighted to talk about. I think that's one of the challenges. I mean, the whole gentrification, what happened to Brooklyn. When I spoke with, with people about Brooklyn before kind of the end of the crisis, let's say before 2010, 2011, people said, okay, fine, just like the... The pay, when people can afford Manhattan, they go to Brooklyn, right? But now Brooklyn stands on its own, and it brings an extraordinary renaissance to this beautiful, uh, uh, you can call it city by itself almost. I mean, Brooklyn by, by itself can be the fourth largest city in the U.S. Um, at the same time, those new forces bring money and gentrification. And if we don't create a communication and we don't create um, a discussion about it, I think it's left to the bad people and the good people the newers and the but that's the beauty of that's why we choose to live in a city the city is an ongoing uh, growing thing um and it's not going to ever stop the moment it stops it's it dies so there'll be better times than worse time in a city there'll be different communities coming in and moving out and i think we have to be responsible and sensitive to the process but still enjoy it because that's why i want to live in a city you mentioned gentrification you know what 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 does that word mean to you? Like, what do you think? What do you think people are talking about? What are they complaining about if they're complaining about it? Well, I, I think what it means to me and what people complain about is two different things. I think um, that the complaint is that people who used to live in Brooklyn in the last, I would say, fifty years, are now priced out of Brooklyn. Um, that's the conversation, and also there's a racial element to it. So you have neighborhoods that are traditionally, in the last, you know, uh, 
50, 60 years have been African-American and then people with more affluence and are coming in and the old community feels that they're being pushed out and in many cases they are. Um, so that that's how people look at gentrification. I think that it's a dynamic thing. There's many, many flavors to it. There's many things we can do about it. So if you look at Bed-Stuy and someone who bought a townhouse for $30,000 in the 80s and now sold it for $2 million, they now can retire and live wherever they want, and that's wonderful. At the same time, you have a next-door neighbor who is a tenant, and she paid you know, $600, and then someone now bought the property, and now they're doing everything they can to push her out so they can rent it to a young you know, the young crowd for $3,000, then mm-hmm. th- that's created the friction. And, and as a society, we have to be responsible for it. We have to, uh, first of all, punish people who are doing it illegally. That's critical, I think. I think we have to provide as much affordable housing as possible. Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes that were made in the last uh, year in the city is that condo was taking out of uh, uh, tax abatements. That's the 421 program or whatever? Yeah, that's a new, the, the new program has a different name, but but it, condos are not relevant anymore. So as a developer for condos, you can't give any tax abatement, and that really priced people out. And there's all those studies and beliefs that uh, when someone owns, they care more about the neighborhood. So if, you know, if you're a tenant, you're going to live there for a year or two. If you own it, you're building equity in your apartment. You're going to live there maybe for two years, five years, ten years, so you're going to invest more in the community and the gardening and in the schools and and... I think the the biggest mistake, and I'm a big, uh, you know, I, I speak about it often, is that they took the con the ownership portion of the new development completely out of the tax abatement. Uh, so basically, going to have neighborhoods of only tenants, only renters, and that they that's, want. That's enjoy- why you're. Is that why you're seeing, like, for example, in downtown Brooklyn along Flatbush, you're seeing huge, huge new rental buildings. Is that is that is that the reason why? Well, th- that's one part. The other part is that uh, traditionally uh, rental buildings are. Uh, the large buildings are built for rental because it's a cash flow and the funds and the insurance companies that invest in those stuff, they're looking for a cash flow. They're not looking for, there's also tax uh, tax uh, structure. So it's kind of you're paying 40 something percent taxes on rental, you basically don't pay, uh, you don't pay taxes. But I think it's a huge mistake. I think we're really killing the opportunity for people to enjoy the change. Uh, uh, as as people living for 10 years, even if, uh, in a, if it's a, a affordable unit, they don't enjoy that. In 10 years from now, yes, they paid very little rent, but in 10 years from now, when they want to move somewhere else or they want to build equity, uh, they never did because they were tenants. And the biggest way to build equity for middle class in the United States is is by owning real estate. Interesting. I mean, there's been, there's a long history of that. Like, are you familiar with the, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the way that the federal government subsidized mortgages, like going back to World War II, you know, I think it was like multifamily buildings. It's almost, it almost feels like, at least historically, um, that cities like New York were intentionally left out of that sort of middle class equity thing, like because it was impossible to get mortgages um, for units over over six units and stuff like that. Like that's kind of been like part of our country's history, right? Is that you is that inner cities specifically don't have huge groups of owners in them? Um, is that what you're talking about? Well, I, th- I think that's part of it. I think the other part is literally uh, where where. When our buyers come to the open house, they look at they don't look they don't think per square foot or you know, they look from a cash flow perspective. So they look at three components: they look at how much will my mortgage uh, cost, how much will my maintenance cost, and how much will my real estate taxes cost. And the combination together will dictate to them what can they afford to buy or not. So they they say I have twenty five hundred dollars a month or three thousand dollars a month, whatever it is uh, to spend a month. That's what I can afford. So as long as interest rates are, are low and we we uh, enjoyed 
uh, 10 years of very low interest rates and maintenance are low if you don't do a doorman or a pool or anything that are very expensive, then the, the other component is, is real estate taxes. And if your real estate taxes, and some of them we, we sell now, apartments are $1,000 a month real estate taxes. So next door, someone build a rental, and a renter, uh, uh, sorry, a rental building, and the only person can benefits from that tax abatement is the landlord himself or herself and the people who get the portion of his tax that, that is affordable. So 30% of the building will be, or 20% depends. But program is, but the rest of, no one else enjoys it. If you spread it and let other uh, condo owners pay less taxes, they can afford more. And, the, and I can see now people are maxed out of Brooklyn, which is a real shame. For someone that's interested in this topic, like what are what are some of the keywords they could search for? Like what what are the what's the name of these programs that you're talking about? Uh, I, I, I forgot the name, but uh, it's called the new tax abatement program. The tax so, abatement yeah, program. Yeah, it's, it's through HUD. You know, so you, there's a lottery process. If you're uh, um, the the you you file you plan. I, I know numerous people who uh, just tried again and again to find those apartments. There's always, you, you, I read the headlines, 70,000 people applied for 400 units. But I think it's about trying it again and again and eventually get into those. I think we have to take care of our lower middle class. I mean, there's programs for the real poor and there's a lot of anything is, avail- is possible and available for rich people. There's so, plenty out there for rich people. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think where we're falling behind is uh, in the lower middle class, uh, the, the students, the young people. What made... New York City exciting. What made Brooklyn, when I came here, I went to live in the East Village. It was an exciting place. There was opportunity to to uh, to do art and to pursue other things, not just be worried about paying your rent. Uh, I think we're losing that edge, and we have to be responsible and keep on uh, providing programs that people can afford uh, opening a gallery. And it doesn't have to be a successful gallery. It doesn't have to be for a bunch of you know tourists who are coming here and, and buying something. But And as we're becoming more and more expensive because the city is safe, and attracts a lot of people more than what we're building right now. Uh, we have to create the programs to make it affordable. Sure thing. Shifting gears a little bit to talk about your company. You know, as you started to build, so you know where we left the story off. You were buying uh, a couple units. Um, you know, when you first got started. Eventually, as as that got more successful, you started to grow into more of like an organization. How did you start to grow as an entrepreneur? Like, what were some of the the steps you took? to switch from being like a, I guess a solo entrepreneur um, to being an organization? Like what were the first things you did there? Well, I can tell you a promise. I, I probably made every mistake in the book possible. Uh, so most of my, uh, I was very lucky because most of my mistakes were done in a market that was going up. So until 2008 when everything collapsed, uh, every mistake I've made was corrected by the market. So. Uh, in the beginning, you realize that I need some help on the maintenance, so I got a person who used to be uh, a personal trainer I worked with a few times, and he was also a plumber on the side, so he helped me. And then you get someone to help you in the office and do the billing for the tenants because we were mainly landlords then. Um, and you naturally grow. And one of the biggest uh, lessons I've learned was in the crisis. So in 2008, when everything pretty much collapsed, everybody disappears on you. And then talk about that specifically. I think a lot of people who even even people who lived through it, but maybe weren't really in it, they hear about a collapse in the stock market suffered and some other things happened and it got harder to get a mortgage, I guess. But like, what was it like? What's what's what would actually happen? Like literally what would happen like on a day to day basis when the financial markets changed the way they did? So I I literally remember the, um, you know, people going down with the boxes uh, from Lehman Brothers Mm -hmm. Um, and 
the 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 week after there's just first of all everybody's in hysterical so even if you have 10 percent unemployment which is very high but let's 10 percent the other nine people out of the 10 are nervous about their future so they're not willing to take any commitment for future uh financial commitments so open houses are open or are empty completely empty banks are telling you that they won't be able to give mortgages to the buyers so that's the beginning of the end then uh, the next thing is banks now getting into a mode of we're going to there'll be troubles so how to protect ourselves and i lived in a townhouse then and every day you, someone knocks on your door and says uh, boss gilad you've been served you've been served so every bank starts foreclosure on you regardless of how the building is doing so even if you're working on site uh sign construction there's something called major liquidity event um the bank basically in some page out of the 300 pages you sign when you get a commercial mortgage or a construction mortgage they're saying if the if the, there's a major liquidity event in your value and whatever who you are as a borrower we can foreclose on you so the everybody's getting into a mode of uh we have to protect ourselves and literally every day i got served every people waiting outside of my house Ask my name. Give had me something court. happen? Like, how do they? I mean, that seems really that seems ridiculously unfair. Well, welcome to you know banking. To banking, mm -hmm. yeah. No, you don't. I mean, that's not shocking. But, but, but specific. So, so they would basically. I guess what you're saying is they would look at your business and decide based on their opinion that like we don't think you're as credit worthy as as, as you were before because the market's changed underneath exactly. your feet, and therefore we have the right to sort of come and take, you know, come take your building from you or or to, or to foreclose on it and try to take it from you. Correct. And you don't have any of the protections that like a consumer would have because you're, no. you're a company, right? Correct. You have no protection. And uh, and one one other thing is when you, uh, they're not really interested. My experience was that most bankers, I don't want to say everybody, but most banks, first of all, the person you establish a relationship with is no longer there. Mm -hmm. So the person, the loan officer who gave you the loan was fired because not him personally or her personally, just the entire department is being sent mm -hmm. home. And then the people who comes in are all about getting rid of those uh, mortgages. Uh, whether they're toxic or non-toxic, they just want a clean slate, uh, empty. Em, Too know. much work to figure out which one's which, right? Exactly. So, so, you, so basically, so we had no, we had empty open houses. We had there's something called uh, interest reserve. When you do a construction loan, you put money aside to pay interest. So, but that's for 18 months. So after you run up the 18 months, there's no more money there, and the bank comes and say, "Okay, I want more money," and you say, "Well, I don't have any money because I haven't sold anything." So that's where the snowball starts. So. We lost everything. We had to send all our employees slowly over the next year after that home. Uh, we stayed, me and my old partner, um, with one part-time bookkeeper. Um, we had nothing to do. Uh, you get your phone doesn't stop ringing from people who you owe money to. Did you, you still own? Did you still own property at that point? Yeah, but they're all worth very little because the debt on it. Also, don't forget that the leverage was available. So they're underwater. They all under. Underwater, we, we were lucky enough that we finished the entire uh, crisis. Uh, no foreclosures, no bankruptcies, no losses, which is amazing. It, it, it was very difficult, but we wrote checks from our pockets to to give money to investors back to to work out with the bank. Um, but I haven't paid a mortgage on my you know my house for a few months. So you know you 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 slowly work it out, and and real estate is a long process. So it's um, it starts slowly. It warms up slowly and it cools down slowly so so even though 2008 was the crisis it was two and a half years till we actually see the the light in the end of the tunnel and i thought it's i thought it's it, i'm done i thought I, I remember came home and i said to my wife uh, you know probably gonna move into a studio somewhere uh and she was she was great about it. she was like okay let's do it 
but it, that didn't happen. So what changed? I think banks took uh, a long time, and I think no one, I mean, I don't know, but I'm assuming no one really knew how well we're gonna do after the crisis. So no one knew if it's gonna be a depression, a recession, um, if it's gonna be a two year or five years, and we had a perfect storm of uh, fast recovery. The right action was were taken, I mean, I have my own opinion about some of the action, but overall the right action we're taking about cleaning the toxic assets. Um, and Brooklyn picked up tremendously. So if you walked around 2009, Williamsburg, um, it's like a war zone. Uh, it's all construction, buildings, boarded up, half finished. And then after, three years later, it was booming and they're selling for a crazy amount of money. So we were very lucky to come out of the crisis quite fast. And that helped us establish yourself in 2011, 2012. And then when I opened Brooklyn Capital uh, in 2012, that's what part of the process. But you, you don't know what's the bottom. You, it's not like you hit the bottom and say, okay, from now I'm going to climb. You have no idea if the bottom is now or bottom is in six months or the bottom is, you know, you're going to lose absolutely everything you have. And you guarantee, you personally guarantee all those loans. You, know, you don't have a way to get out of it. Right. So then in 2012 is when you founded, the, I guess what you said is the current version of, of you as an entrepreneur um, yes. in Brooklyn Capital. What was the difference between that and what you had been doing before? Like what, what did you found? Well, I, I, first of all, I learned um, a lot of things uh, during the crisis. Uh, the, the bankers disappearing you. We just spoke about it. Uh, contractors disappearing you. So I knew nothing about construction. And I had to go to Home Depot and pick up people and finish the building by myself with uh, minimal budget, credit card, uh, debt and three people I just picked up at the entrance to Home Depot. Um, and so you learn on construction. So one of the things I wanted to establish a system where if something happens in the future, I don't have, I'm not left with um, with no power. And so one thing is we establish a very, very strong construction department that hands-on manages the general contractor. I can slip into the shoes of any contractors any moment if there's a problem and finish the job and uh, and that's, I think, one of our strongest departments is the construction department. The other thing is uh, you diversify the source of, of uh, equity. So my source of equity before that was upper middle class, people who used uh, their home equity line of credit or they were a little wealthy individuals who put some money with us. And when they dried, you had to find other resources. So I went to raise money internationally. I went to raise money in Israel. I went to money in London. Uh, I took my company and raised debt in the, the public market. So the idea is to have many baskets. So when, when the next crisis happens, you have connections, you have the abilities to buy a discount versus surviving, barely surviving a crisis. Mm-hmm. And they, you, you t- talk a little bit about, you said that, um, what was the thing you said at the beginning? That uh, you know, when when the market's tough, then there's lots of you know, there's lots of deals, and when the market's great, there's there's lo- there's hard getting capital. Like, did that did that switch on you sort of around that same time? Like, yes, in the, the two thousand tens. If you're, I would say, it, um, if you're a monkey and you bought in Brooklyn in two thousand and eleven, you made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. There was literally you can open the newspaper, point to anything, without even knowing, and buy it, and you'd have made a lot of money because the value went up so much in the last six seven years. Um, so that attracts a lot of money, international money, local money, uh, from big funds to individual person who's raising money from their cousins and you know from some family money. Um, but that put a lot of pressure on the market. So we haven't bought something. I mean, we just bought something a, a month ago in Queens. But before that, for almost two years, I haven't bought anything. So um, because do, do the you price, feel the, you feel the market's over overheated now. 
Not anymore. I, I think it was a year ago. Uh, has it has it fallen since then, or has yes, the market picked up? Yes, I think that uh, the market is now um, stabilized, boring to some degree in in the best way. Uh, uh, people, because there's a psychology of pricing where you, your neighbor got ten million dollars for their auto shop, so you say, "I'm now I want to retire. I want twelve million dollars because the market's going up, right?" Mm-hmm. But he got the ten million dollars at the peak of the market, so. But you have to go through a psychological process of first of all saying, I want $12 million. And then brokers sometimes will say, okay, I'll get you $12 million because they just want the listing. But then it sits there for six months, no one comes. And you get low balls offers. You get $8 million and $9 million because that's the real price. Yeah. And then it takes you, eventually you say, I have to retire. I want to move. I'm not going to get $12 million. I got to go down to $9.5 million. And I think that's where we are now. You wake up and you realize I can still buy like a lot of, a lot of lunches. <laughs> exactly. I can move to Florida and do whatever. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so I, I, think, I think it takes time to, for people to calm down and realizing that the numbers do not work. And I, I don't think I'm the only one. Many people like me bought a lot of stuff in the last, in 2011, 12, 13. Um, and we have so much inventory. We have, I mean, I had in the peak 52 projects at the same time. Now we're about... 20-something construction sites working at the same time. Um, so we have plenty of work. Even if I didn't buy anything, I have another two years at least of, 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 of a lot of work. Um, a lot of people did that. A lot of people bought a lot of, uh, they looked at opportunities, that, and now they're digesting that process. But, but at the same time, last year and a half, the market had been overheated. So no one buying, now it's calming down, and it's the first time over the last two years that I'm now looking at, I'm, I'm in the middle of negotiation on three different deals. One of the things that, 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 that sticks in my mind, and this is just my own sort of personal, uneducated point of view, you know, I look around and I see some of these buildings going up. Um, I've lived in downtown Brooklyn for about 20 years or so, and I see you know, these high-rises full of luxury rentals. There's the world's tallest pool is going up on Flatbush and you know, Albee Square or whatever that is. And I mean, you, know, you read all these articles and so on, and then you drive around you know, or you, you explore the borough, and you'll see that you're seeing similar stuff like you know, way out east in, into Bushwick, you know, Crown Heights, Bed-Stuy, East New York. It's this huge amount of property um, that's, you know, that has developments everywhere. I mean, the Williamsburg's corridor sort of along, um, I guess, around uh, the Lorimer stop, mm-hmm. you know, that, that area has like another 55 buildings, it feels like, the last time I was, I was over there. Th- the point of this is, you know, you look at the prices for these things and then you sort of do some math and you realize there have to be like hundreds of thousands of people that, make hundreds of thousands of dollars like there's no other way that it works um you know when like is that really true like is is is, is there something wrong with this picture is it is, is is that a sign that there's a bubble here somewhere or are there just really so many people with money and, and they all come to new york like how does that what's going on there like it seems you look at that the, the math just doesn't seem to work on paper but clearly something's happening like what's your take on it with your with your nose right up against this market so uh it's really about my nose because i don't know the the fact you know um I can, so on the luxury, like super luxury, I'm talking about Manhattan super luxury. I think that's a bubble. Okay, I, I Manhattan super. I mean, look at Dumbo. Look at look at look at Williamsburg. Look yeah, at Domino it, Park. It, it right? pushes I mean, it's not Manhattan, is it? Yeah. Well, it's not because you don't. I don't think you're selling six thousand dollars square foot here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the way like the super luxury, which is really based on you know foreign buyers, they just park their money there. So I think that's a bubble. But overall, I have not experienced a bubble. I think I'm blown away by how much money people are making. It's it's incredible. People in, in there's some industries. I'm, I'm again, uh, th- there's you know in technology and in in, uh, in marketing and in, in media. I, I see the the buyers because I, I when they get a mortgage, I can see the numbers. I'm amazed how many people either have 
uh, help from their parents. Um, tradition, last We spoke about it. Uh, last 10 years, interest rates were pretty much close to zero. So a lot of parents saying, my money's not making any money on CDs or... Mm-hmm. So I got to put my money somewhere. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to give it to my kids before I die versus after I die. So we have substantial amount of cash buyers, and those are not investors. I I have only one building that I've seen a wave of uh, foreign investors buying in. Most of my buyers are people are going to live there for two, three years, four years, and they're going to move on to a larger place or to the suburbs or wherever they want to go to. Um, but I'm I'm amazed, but with the high salaries that people are paying uh, in New York, in particular industries. So again, that's part of the, the transition of Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not a cheap alternative. So someone like you, like me, who've been here for a long time, one of the reasons probably we chose to be in Brooklyn is because it was low-key to some degree. It's part of New York City, it's extraordinary, but there was something middle class about it. And the, the forces that are coming into Brooklyn, a lot of them are very wealthy. Interesting. So. Was that a long way of saying it's a lot of people have their parents' money? <laughs> that, I mean, that's, yes, that, yeah. That's a big part. I mean, that's what a lot of people suspect that that's that's what's driving this. Um, but you're saying it's a little bit of both, right? Yes, it's I, a combination see, of that, yeah. and then also, I guess, like another generation of jobs, it's sort of like a have and a have nots kind of thing. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. You you see people in their late twenties making three hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's you know it's insane, but those are the numbers. And here, here's the difference. I think those people always existed, maybe, but culturally. Um, uh, marketing-wise, they were not interested in living in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So if you worked in Wall Street and you made $250,000 right out of college or after grad school, let's say you went to a good MBA school and mm-hmm. uh, you made $250,000 to start with, you would do whatever it takes to live in the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, uh, Gramercy. You, you won't come to Brooklyn. Now they won't even bother looking at those places because they're young, they want the best restaurant, the best bars, uh, Uber, Via, all those places provide made it much more uh, available. Um, so they want to live where the cool kids are and the cool kids are in Brooklyn. They're not in Manhattan. So therefore money comes into, uh, is, is coming into Brooklyn that we're not familiar with. What's next for you guys at Brooklyn Capital? We love what we're doing. Um, so if it was up to me, I would do the same thing, just more, uh, where, but we're also very sensitive to the market and very sensitive to our abilities. So for example, one of the things we're exploring now we got approached by a few people to build for them because the quality of the construction, uh, the speed of the construction is is not- notable. So people are reaching out to us and saying, would you build for me? So one of the things we're exploring from a business perspective is actually creating our own construction company. Um, uh, but in the end of the day, I'm a residential developer and I love urban life. I always lived in a city, I love cities. Um, and I love the people who we're building homes for. There's nothing more exciting uh, to me than uh, sitting in a design meeting, but then a year later drive by that building and seeing the lights on and knowing that I built that building and I provided housing for for people. So I want to keep on doing that, whether it's going to be in New York or just on the border of uh, Brooklyn, Queens. Uh, you know, we're looking at a deal in, in Yonkers right now. Uh, I'll, I'll do a project in Denver. I mean, it's, I'm not attached to a particular area. I love Brooklyn because I live here and I'm, I'm raising a family here. But I don't see a major change in what we're doing because we love what we're doing and we have an extraordinary team. That's excellent. Boaz, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. You've been listening to From Day One, how Brooklyn entrepreneurs got their start. This series is made possible by The Bridge, a news site dedicated to reporting on business in Brooklyn. With help from Complex Ventures, 
Brooklyn-based digital agency working with more than profit companies and organizations. For more from The Bridge, to learn more about today's guest or to listen to more episodes of From Day One, visit us at thebridgebk.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-I-D-G-E-B-K.com. From Day One is produced by Cora Feeder, Steve Kep, and myself, Nick Bailey. Audio editing and post-production by Steph Derwin. Our theme music was performed by Jody Rockwell and the Ambulance, and our founding sponsor was the Made in New York Media Center. Thanks for listening.